Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Clausius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Good morning. We doing all right this morning? Hey, it's good to see y'all. Actually, I can't see any of you. These lights are really bright, but we're glad you're here hanging out. If you're a guest, I got to tell you, don't get nervous. Uh, this Today was the first time and the last time anybody's going to be called out for their birthday in one of our worship services, okay? Uh, I, I thought, you know, normally we do the meet and greet, so I was over here talking to one of our members thinking, okay, here in a minute, we're all going to stand and walk around. Next thing I know, somebody's talking birthday stuff, and then my wife is pointing at me, and I'm like, oh, he's doing that today. All right. Uh, but uh, we're glad you're here. We will not call you out on your birthday if you decide that the Lord has you here in the future, so you don't have to worry about that. But it's a, it's a joy. Yesterday was my birthday, and uh, it's a big number. I'm not going to shout out, but I'm thankful the Lord has allowed me that many years on the earth. Uh, church names are an interesting thing. In fact, here at Genesis, we're Genesis Church, right? Uh, coming up with our church name was actually a crazy thing in our early stages. And I could tell you the whole story, but it's, it was just interesting coming up with a way to identify our church. And we kind of got got uh, connected to the tagline, a place for new beginnings, and it, it worked for us. But church names are interesting, and some of them are just downright funny, uh, and so, so uh, it, you know, once you get a name of a church, you kind of get identified by that. Sometimes the funny church names come, come about as a result 
of uh, like your city. So uh, these are true, honest church names. Uh, how about the Boring Methodist Church? Some of you are like, I, I go to that church now, right? The Boring Church. Uh, uh, or uh, I love this one, um, the Licking Christian Church. I would be really uncomfortable in their meet and greet each week. Um, that is in the city of Licking, Missouri. True church, true name. Uh, and they have another place in town that is called the Licking, the Licking Exchange. I'm not going there, just so you know, okay? I don't know what it's for. Not going to show up. Or this is in southwest Missouri, the Halfway Baptist Church. Uh, they are not all the way. We are halfway Baptist. We are halfway in. Halfway is a little town between Buffalo and Bolivar. Halfway Missouri, and there is the Halfway Baptist Church. Sometimes you end up with names that kind of designate or trying to tell you something about the church. So, for example, there's a church that is called the Cowboy Church, and their tagline is Rounding Up Souls for Jesus. You know, you kind of do, 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 do. Your people showing up on their horses, you know, walking with their chaw and ready to go, right? I'm, you know, Cowboy Church. This is, what, this is a true, this is not made up. This is a church in Dade County, Florida. The first church of the Last Chance World on Fire Revival and Military Academy. That would be a fun one to visit. The World on Fire Revival and Military Academy. In other words, it's either going to be a revival or we're, we're going to take up arms, I guess. I don't know, but, but that's, that's an interesting one. Every once in a while you'll be driving around and you'll see a church that's like the New Harmony. Like you'll see the New Harmony Baptist Church. And sometimes a name of the church tells you a lot about the church even when they didn't mean to. Because normally when you see like a New Harmony Baptist Church or a, a Harmony Church or something like in that vein, they're telling you that they, they were a church split. Like we were part of that church over there and then we didn't like those people anymore. We thought they were like mean and spirited and angry. And so we went and started the New Harmony Baptist Church. And then in one town, uh, not too far from here, there's the New Harmony Baptist Church the Greater Harmony Baptist Church, and then the Greater New Harmony Baptist Church all in the same town. You know, sometimes church names give away a lot. But one of the church names, if you drive around, uh, you know, through countrysides, they're often in major urban cities, you will find churches that are named Antioch Church, Antioch Methodist, Antioch Baptist, Antioch Episcopal. I mean, they, you, know, you will see churches that are named Antioch, and they're not in the city of Antioch. In fact, there's very few Antiochs here in the United States. Probably a few, but most of the time they're not identifying as a city. They're actually tying their name to this story that we have in Acts and this amazing story of, of an unbelievable, beautiful church in the city of Antioch in the ancient world, Antioch of Syria. And so we're going to be looking today at that. Last week, we were kind of in this passage where sandwiched in between our passage that we had this week was last week's story of Peter and the miraculous delivery from prison that he had, uh, but also the death of the apostle James. And, and some things are going on as Luke is telling the story. If you've been with us, we're preaching through this amazing book of Acts, the story of the early church, and what we always have in the story. If you haven't picked up on this, if you've been with us, haven't picked up with this, what you have is you start with the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that Christ came, lived his life for us, he was, his perfect life, he died uh, uh, the death on the cross in our place for our sins, he was buried, rose up on the third day, and the pronouncement that in the gospel, if you will turn from yourself, if you will run to Jesus and place your faith and trust in him, if you will give your life to Christ, he will save you and redeem you. But, but what happens is that anywhere the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel creates the church. Now, we planted a church here in Eureka, and it was a few people who came to Eureka who started just like, there were six of us who kind of got the ball rolling, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to, to make sure that we were proclaiming and making much of Jesus because we believe that the gospel is what creates the church. And anywhere in the book of Acts where the gospel is proclaimed, you have people who believe, those people who believe become a community of faith. And if you've been with us at all at Genesis, we tell you all the time the church is not a building, it is not a structure, it is not a hierarchy. The church is always a people who have heard and believed the gospel, and now because of what the gospel's done in them, the, the saving work of Jesus, they are now brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are, they are in a community together where they are a counterculture, a community of faith, living their lives for Christ. And Antioch becomes one of these important moments. And so what happens in, as you read Acts, the story of Acts, heading towards Acts 13, there are some major shifts. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit has been a major theme in the book. This is the third person of the Trinity present with us, uh, filling our lives, empowering us for mission, uh, giving gifts. And, and uh, actually, it is the Holy Spirit who rescues people when they hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit is who makes them alive, that they are born again by the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit is with us today, that he is in us, that I am praying this morning that the Holy Spirit will fill me so that I can faithfully proclaim Christ. And anything that comes this morning that is good is not because of great songs, although we have them, and an amazing band, although they are. It's not because I am necessarily a good preacher or a bad preacher. If it is good and it lasts, it's because the work of the Spirit of God does something special in our midst this morning. That's what we need every week. We want the Holy Spirit of God to come into this space and fill the lives of his people and empower us for what he has called us to do. We want the Holy Spirit of God to take the gospel that is proclaimed, the good news of Jesus, and apply it to the lives of people who may not believe so that their eyes are open. They will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be rescued and redeemed. And so, so the gospel shapes and forms the church. And the gospel started working in Jerusalem. And so the whole story of the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts has been about, primarily about the church in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem started with 120 people in a room. The Holy Spirit came on them. They, they went out into the streets proclaiming Christ on day one of Christianity. There were 3,000 people who believed on that day. A few months later, there were over 5,000 men in the church. So 5,000 households were being counted. By the, by the sixth chapter, which is just a few months later, there literally are uh, more people than can be counted. But we have uh, people who are in the, the religious leaders coming to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is birthing a movement and is birthing a movement in one city among one people. These are all Jewish people. Yet... 
In the story of the, the Bible, when Jesus spoke to his apostles, he told them that they should go make disciples of all nations. As Jesus spoke to his disciples, and as it's uh, given to us in Acts, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the church in Jerusalem got really big and, and, and became significant in number, yet they became very comfortable being a Jewish movement in a single city. And what happens is it takes persecution, a massive persecution that breaks out, that causes the mother church in Acts to start spinning out and sending and reaching the nations. And so you have this church in Acts. What happens between Acts 11 and Acts 13 is we have some major shifts that tell us, first of all, that the church in Jerusalem, while still being important, is no longer the main church in the story, nor is it the most influential and most in important church in the world at that point in time. The, sh the shift of the story focuses from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And that's why we're doing a whole sermon this morning just on this one church as it shows up in the text and kind of showing you two passages that deal with this church in Antioch because the shift of the story sh moves from Jerusalem church to the church in Antioch. We also have another shift, and the shift is from Peter, who is named as primarily the apostle to the Jews. And it doesn't mean Peter doesn't preach to the Gentiles, but he's a Jewish man whose primary mission are to people who are kind of in his tribe, who are more like him, who are more uh, uh, background and story like him. Although he has crossed that barrier by preaching Jesus to the family of a, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, but what happens after he, the, the story that we had, we talked about last week, where Peter ends up being arrested and thrown in prison, and he's about to be martyred, but then he, the, the, an angel comes and lets him out of jail, is the story tells us that Peter departed and went to another place, and in the story of Acts, with one exception, in Acts 15, Peter exits stage right. He has been the central human character in almost every moment in the first 12 chapters of Acts, and now Peter disappears, and he is going to replace with this man named Paul, who is also known as Saul, Saul and Paul, same dude, uh, got a whole sermon several weeks ago about why, and we're going to come back to the life story of Paul a little bit later, but understand it is now Paul, who is a Jewish Pharisee whom Christ had miraculously saved, he, he like was confronted by Jesus himself with the gospel, and now Paul is going to be the primary human uh, character from Acts 13 on as he is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel to the nations. He's going to go to cities and preach Christ all over the world. And the rest of Acts is going to start telling us the story of these crazy, amazing missionary journeys. And I'm so excited about next week because next week we're going to jump into the first missionary journey of this guy named Paul. But this week... The focus, like the focus of the story has moved from, um, from, from Jerusalem church to Antioch, from Peter to Paul, and the story moves from the Jews, the gospel to the people that were religious, who grew up understanding the Torah and the law, the Old Testament, the people who had this religious background, to the nations as the gospel now is going to go and cross bridges and start reaching people that the gospel has never reached before. People who did not grow up 
religious, or at least not in the religion of the one God of Israel. People who are Greek and Roman in the way they see the world and interact. People, diverse cultures and diverse cities. And, and the Great Commission had always commanded the apostles to go. But in the story, it takes persecution for the Jerusalem church to go. The church in Antioch is vastly different. And so the way this book, written by this man named Luke, is actually structured is that at the beginning of the book uh, of Acts and Acts chapter 2, we have this amazing passage that showed us the rhythms, the discipleship, the favor that the church of Jerusalem had. And, and what I told you was I believe that what's going on in Acts 2 is that Acts 2 is not just describing the church in Jerusalem. Acts 2 gives us a template for every church in the rest of the, the, the story of Acts. That they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, to doing the Lord's Supper and communion, to administering the sacraments, to seeing the glory of God in them. They are a community of faith, loving one another. There is a high level of generosity and care for each other. Those sorts of things that are part of the story that I'm telling you, every time we see a church, including Antioch, those rhythms, those things are going on as the community of faith becomes a, a gospel-transformed group of people that love the Lord their God, that love each other, they love their city, and they're there to serve and, and to represent Jesus in their world. But what happens is Antioch shows up in this passage, and now we have another church who in one very specific way is different from Jerusalem. And Luke is trying to say that we need to be like this as well. And so there's some beauty in what's going on, this, this amazing story of the church in Antioch uh, as uh, all this happens. And uh, as we see this, there is, uh, as the text begins, um, it tells us in, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 11, look at that again. If you have your Bibles, grab them, open them up. We'll, we'll be referencing several passages, several parts of this amazing story about this church in Antioch. He says, now there's, there were uh, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke, in, uh, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'll come back to this in a minute, but what I want you to see right now in the text is that you have this persecution at the hands of, uh, when, when a man named Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And we know that Saul, who is in the story, a.k.a. Paul, is the one who launched this persecution. He was not a believer yet. He hated Christianity. And he began to persecute and kill Christians. He was standing over Stephen when he died. And he starts a persecution that we are told in Acts uh, chapter 9 that, that the Christians in Jerusalem, all these Jewish Christians now had to scatter and leave Jerusalem in fear of their lives as he went from house to house finding believers in these homes that housed smaller versions of the church and carried them off to jail, had them arrested, had them harassed and beaten and sometimes killed. And so people leave Jerusalem, they scatter all over the place, and they went to these regions. All these regions are north of Jerusalem, and, and Antioch right now is the furthest north. So Antioch is this amazing city in uh, what is modern-day Syria, Actually, it was Syria back then, too. Antioch of Syria, Syrian Antioch, is the third largest city 
and the second or third most influential city in the Roman Empire. It was a massive metropolis at this point in time. It was a city that was incredibly diverse. It did have a very large population of Jewish people who had spread there, some of them Christians, but a lot of them who had not embraced Jesus, but they came to Antioch uh, during this spreading out of Judaism, this thing called the Diaspora. And so you have all kinds of Jews in Antioch, but there, it is also a, a city that was um, founded about 300 years before uh, by um, a, a person who came just about 20 years after Alexander the Great, and uh, it was named after one of the early Greek rulers and leaders of the, of the different versions of the Greek empire, and you can go study all that on your own. It was a very Greek city, although it was in the Middle East. And so you have the city that has a lot of Middle Eastern peoples who traveled to the city to do commerce and, and, and to be part of the world there, but also a lot of Greek people. And then when Rome conquered the whole Middle East, now the Roman Empire embraced Antioch as the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. So this is not a minor city. It is a significant city. And what happens is that Christians get there, they begin to preach the gospel, they begin to share Jesus, but whether it's on stages like this or with their neighbors in backyards, they begin to tell people about Jesus. People begin to believe in Jesus. We find out that, that it's not just Jewish people who, who believe about Jesus, it becomes all the people there start believing about Jesus, and you have this incredible new multi-ethnic, multicultural church, and it is the first one that crosses that boundary. The first time we have a church that is really made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and it becomes important. And so what I have here is I have a little map up here just to show you what I just told you about. Um, so you see down Jerusalem, very down at the south, and what we had is, is Phoenicia and Syria. Cyprus is an island over here out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It is referenced, and now we have Antioch, the city that is way up there to the north. If you notice uh, in the journey, the top two arrows, there is Antioch and, and Tarsus, Tarsus is the city where Saul is from, and we're told in the story that this guy named Barnabas traveled when things were going on in Antioch. He traveled to Tarsus to get Paul and bring him back. That's part of it. But this is what it looks like on a map, what's happening in the story. And the gospel's being taken there. And what we see here are examples of, of, of really two types of churches that have two different types of mission. And this is something that, that I like to share every once in a while. If you went through our gospel class, we talked about this. I think there are two ways that a church can kind of center their mission. The DNA of a church, and one is to be a church that has a centripetal mission, and the other is to have a church that has a centrifugal mission. Now, let me explain this. You're like, wait, what? Sin, sin what? All right, so what we're talking about here are two ways that gravitational pull works primarily on like water and liquids when it is in the context of something that is spinning. Well, it's not just liquids, it's really anything that is in, in a circle. And there is a pull either in or out. And so centripetal force is when the gravitational pull is pulling things toward the middle. It's holding on and the gravitation pulls towards the center. Where centrifugal force is when the gravitational pull because of the spin spins things out and, and pushes them away from the center, okay? So for example, centripetal mission looks like your toilet. Hit the plunger, what happens? See that it pulls towards the center. On the other hand, centrifugal uh, force is like 
your uh, dryer or your washing machine that when it spins, it throws things to the edge. Or like I like to explain, Tom's Twister. Anybody here ride Tom's Twister when it was at Six Flags? Okay, for those of you who had no experience with Tom's Twister, Tom's Twister was this insane ride that I rode once. I'm telling you the true story about what happened on Tom's Twister. I get in, and it's this round room, a little, little bit of gap at the top, but it's, it's, it's warm and a little uncomfortable, stinks a little bit. They had these like corrugated or these, these walls that had texture. And so you go stand next to the wall. Everybody's in a circle next to the wall. And what happens is the whole room starts spinning. And you're going really fast and you feel the force of the spin. You're pushed against the edge. And that, like you, you get to where you kind of can't move and then they drop the floor. So you're like stuck to the wall, like Velcro, right? Against the wall and just spinning in circles. And I'm getting a little sick. This is not fun for me. I'm like, why do people do this? I'm not doing it again. Right about that time, somebody puked. And so for a moment, that hovered in midair. And then the centrifugal force took over. <laughs> okay. And I definitely was never riding that ride again. So, so you have force that pulls to the center, force that pushes out to the edges. Now listen, I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong necessarily, but I do think that a lot of times what happens in the life of a church is that you will form your way of seeing your mission and ideas in the world over either more of a centripetal mission or a centrifugal mission. And we see this in the text. Let me explain what I mean. For a lot of churches, they have shaped the mission, the way they see their interaction with the world, the way they see their ministries, around the idea that what we have to do is we have to pull towards the middle. So, so the goal is we need to get people who are out in the culture on our parking lot somehow. They need to come to us. If we get them on our parking lot, we, we want to get them inside our foyer. If we get them in our foyer, we want to get them into our worship space, our big room. If we get them in our big room, we, need to, we then need to get them in our smaller rooms. Like, like, do you feel the pull that the whole sense of who they are looks like? The more we can get people in our building, in our structures, in our systems, the more they will be discipled, and therefore the more Christian they will be, and the more they will be connected and committed and involved in our church. This pull towards the middle. Once we get them in small rooms, we get them on committees and teams and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff is important and good. But what happens in a church that really sees its DNA like that is it gets very comfortable with itself. And it looks at people on the outside and says, you are welcome. But when you come here, you're going to have to embrace and understand our culture to really fit into the life of this church. That was the church of Jerusalem. It is what's going on, and the only thing that led to the church of Jerusalem getting away from itself and out to a larger world was persecution. In some churches, the only way they ever get outside themselves is to go through a church split, which is not healthy. And, and so there are a lot of programs and a lot of things the church can do, and there's nothing wrong with the programs but sometimes without even thinking about it, the whole sense of mission is let's, let's just keep moving people towards the center. Where on the other hand, centrifugal mission, which is what I hope will be a genesis, is that, that what it looks like is for us to do all that we can to spin our people out. 
that what we want to do is we do want to gather in our community groups, but we don't necessarily want them to be on a campus. We do want to do stuff for kids, but we're not necessarily doing it in a building. And here we are 16 years, we're moving towards a building. We don't have a building to pull towards. And part of the reason we have chosen not to build up till this point is because we did not want the gravitational of a pull, pull of a building to, to, to move us towards a church that became comfortable in a structure. And so, so the idea of spinning people out, saying, listen, what we want to do is we help disciple you. We, we help you grow. What we really want to do is we want to see you understand who Jesus is. We want you to open the scriptures and read the Bible and understand the gospel and the grand story of the scriptures. But as you do that, we also want you to understand that the reason God saved you was to send you. The reason he blessed you was to be a blessing. This is one of the great themes of the Bible, that people who are blessed by Christ, people who are blessed by God, are blessed to be a blessing. And so what happens in this text like, it's, it's here. I'm, I'm not pulling stuff out of thin air. What we have is people who left Jerusalem, who end up in Phoenicia and Cyprus, and very specifically, they come to Antioch. They come to a multicultural city where, where there is so much diversity, and they preach the gospel. But who do they preach the gospel to? Verse 19, look at it. Somebody look down and help me out. Who do they preach the gospel to? So I heard somebody say it real loud. Jews. They moved from Jerusalem. They came to a city that was really different. And then they said, we got to find people who are just like us. We got to figure out who these people are. We got to find out people who grew up with the same belief systems. They look like us. They talk like us. They speak our language. They're, they're and, and we're going to go to them and we're going to, we're going to share Jesus with them. But they only preach to the Jews. But what happens is what the text is saying, verse 20. In some of the places where Jews left Jerusalem and went to other places like Cyprus, and they preached the gospel only to Jews, the Jewish people in those towns who hadn't grown up in Jerusalem come to Antioch, and when they get there, they go to, it says, our text says Hellenist. It's just a word to say to the Greek people. They went and found the people who didn't grow up, like, culturally totally different, didn't have the same values, didn't have the same systems, didn't have the same worldview, didn't have the same way of understanding that their culture and all that, and they intentionally went to them. They, you see that one version is we're going to move towards people who are just like me. The other is saying, man, we're going to get in the city and we're going to befriend people. We're going to have neighbors and friends who live and who are different from us, but we're going to get to know them. We're going to pour our lives into them. We're going to be a blessing to those people. We're going to proclaim Christ to those people, right? And, and, and as that happens, we are told in the text that the Spirit of the Lord blessed that, and as a result, this city of Antioch has a church that explodes in number. And it becomes the missionary church in the New Testament. I want to be part of a church that has a missionary heart, that sees our neighbors and the nations as, as our, our focus and our purpose, that has a strong community. And this is exactly what happens. It's why Antioch is so important. And it is really why in the story, I believe Jerusalem, while it is still there and still important, is not the focus of the second half of Acts at all. 
Antioch is. And what will happen is Paul, when he makes his circle, so he's going to go on three, three world tour um, missionary journeys. His home base sending church is always Antioch. It's where he comes back to. This church becomes so vital and so key. And we can learn a few things about what it means to be a church by looking at the culture of this missionary church. And so what I'm saying to you is, like what I'm talking to you right now is as a church, this is who we want to be. But I'm going to apply it at the end to you as an individual because you can be sitting here going, this is cool, I come to this church, it sounds all uh, awesome and all, or maybe you're like, I don't know that I like this. But I think there is application for what happens in a church like Antioch for each and every one of us and for our families. So that's what we're going to hit when we end in a few minutes. But I want to show you a few things about this church in Antioch that are so key to understanding God's mission and purpose for all of us. And so four things, they're nice and alliterated this morning. We're going to talk about a seeking culture, a shepherding culture, a serving culture, and a sending culture. That that's what we want to see nurtured in Genesis, and that's what we see in this text, okay? And so the first thing we see is a seeking culture in the church. We see this church who is, starts as primarily Jewish people. Now, you're like, I'm not Jewish. How do I connect this? There, is a, there are all kinds of cultural divides in our culture, in, our, in our, like our whole experience right now. Some of these are religious and irreligious. There is a sense in which there is a secular worldview and a religious worldview. And those of us who have a religious worldview, you know, you, you can see this. I mean, I know what it's like. I get in an airplane and I sit next to somebody and you start like that little chit chat. And, and the first thing, if you're like me, you hope is that they will look at you, put their earbuds in, which says, don't bother me. I don't want to talk. And then they will turn away and start looking at their device. That, that, whew, I'm off the hook. I don't really chit chat with them. But if they do want to chit chat, what am I hoping for? That I'll say something to that person, like, like drop a little hint, and that person will respond to that hint about, uh, you know, something about spirituality with, oh, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus. And that way I will feel better about the fact that I'm sitting next to somebody who's on my team. Do you do that? Do you get that? Do you get when you walk into situations and you're like listening to hope that the person next to you agrees with your side of certain issues? And we've become this culture that it's everything. Like, you, you kind of feel like in every relationship, you've got to walk in and ask who they voted for, what they thought about masks, you know, what, what people think about certain, it, it, like, I've got to figure out, are you with me or not? But we've got so many issues that there are these massive divides. And in the context of that, we tend to be comfortable with people who see and think and, fit and, and examine the world like us. And really uncomfortable if we step into spaces where people aren't. And in the midst of that, what we see is the call of Christ to be a seeking, to have a seeking culture. That we're building relationships, getting to know people who see the world differently, getting to know people who understand, you know, anything in a way that's not like I do. And especially when that is a religious versus a secular way of seeing the world. Are we finding ways to be intentional about that? In, in a book called Just Walk Across the Room, that is a book about evangelism by a pastor named Bill Hybels, um, he tells a story of a Muslim man, an African-American Muslim man who had a very Muslim name. And he, in the story, he's apparently a, a larger gentleman, and, the, and this man is telling his own story. Uh, and it is a story of coming to faith. And he said he was part of a, a company that worked in Atlanta. And that company would have a lot of like cocktail hours where he was kind of required to go. But he was 
definitely one of the only people in his company that were African-American. Add to that the fact that he was Muslim, and he would get, he knew what it looked like, okay? He said there, there would be clusters of people here and here, and they would all have a cocktail and, you know, you know some chicken wings in their hand around a table, They'd be, and he would end up feeling awkward and uncomfortable. He felt like he had to show up, but he would stand next to the wall on this side and just hanging out. And he would, he would bide his time until he felt like, okay, I've made my appearance, I'm slipping out. That was kind of his mode of doing this. Until one day, somebody at this table who was sitting here looked across the room and saw this man. And he walked across the room. That's all he did, just walked across the room. Well, well the person who was at this table was actually a believer in Jesus and began to have a conversation with this man and pulled this man into this group of people to include him, and then it formed a relationship where over time they started having spiritual conversations. And the outcome of that little journey across the room to somebody who was an outsider ended with this African-American Muslim man becoming a follower of Jesus. Just walk across the room. That's what a seeking culture looks like. When a church begins to understand, we begin to see people not as other, but as, as people, all of them, in need of Jesus Christ. And there are religious and irreligious people. The next two sermons are going to look like what the gospel go- looks like when it goes to more religious people, because there are tons of people in our culture who claim religion, but they may claim a different religion, they may have a different flavor of religion, but they don't know Jesus, and we need to figure out what it looks like to move towards them. And there are more and more and more irreligious, secular people in our culture. They are not our enemies. They are not the people we're against. They are the people that Christ has placed us here to seek. Jesus says, I came to seek and save those who are lost. Well, guess what? If we are Jesus' people, that's our job too. Amen? You guys are not enthusiastic about that. This is, this is like a seeking culture. This is what we see in Antioch. The second thing was we see is shepherding culture. What happens in verses 22 through 25 is actually really interesting because you have the first diverse church. And therefore, because the culture is different, the Jews in the context aren't setting the agenda for what it looks like to gather. They have different music. They have some different ways of interacting. You know, there's a lot of uncircumcised bacon-eating people in this church. And so the church of Jerusalem isn't sure what to do with this. But in the providence of God, when they send somebody, so here they go, I'm not so sure about this. We need to send somebody. I, I got to guess that Barnabas was like, I'll make the trip. All right, Barnabas, you go. And, and Barnabas' name literally means the, the encourager. The encourager. We met this guy a while back. He's the guy who, who kind of brokered the deal between Paul and the apostles by, by bringing Paul when he was not getting along. Like everybody was afraid of Paul because he had been the persecutor, and now he brings him, brings Paul to the apostles. That's who this guy is. Barnabas shows up in, uh, uh, in the city of Antioch. He is a Jewish man sent from the church of Jerusalem to check out this church. And look at what we're told he does in verses uh, 22 through 25. It says that uh, 
Pick it up in verse 23. When he came, Barnabas came and saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So here's what he does. He comes from Jerusalem with this fear that this multicultural church who isn't doing things the Jewish way might be leaving the faith. They might be running away from God and coming up with all kinds of different beliefs. And so he shows up and he sees that the grace of God is at work in this church. And what he does, he does two amazing things that are here in the text that are what it looks like for for your shepherds, your people to lead you. The first thing he does is he affirms what the Lord is doing as they are diligent about being a church with a seeking culture. Knowing that when you bring in people who look different and sound different and talk different and think different, it's going to change the way your church interacts. While at the same time, sadly sometimes you see translations and English translators put a sentence in and you read it like I, I do. I spend some time in the original language. I'm not telling you that to impress you. I'm telling you that to explain what's going on here. Uh, he, he, what it says here is he, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What it, the text literally says is he boldly dared them to hold on to Jesus with all their hearts. Love your city, reach your city, but do not let your ministry to your city cause you to let go of Jesus. Now, this is what happens in churches. You end up with churches who will hold on to Jesus with all their heart, but the city around them, the lost people in the world around them freak them out and they don't know how to have conversations. Or you have churches who say, we must take Christianity and make it meaningful to the culture, and in their efforts to do that, they give up Jesus himself. And, and you can drive around, and I can figure churches, it doesn't take long to be around church to figure out which one of those lanes a church is running in. You can sometimes see it just by the stuff they have on their sign. Yet, for us, what it means to be the people of God, the spirit-filled people of God, means that we hold on to Jesus. We love Jesus. We are for Jesus. And that your pastors are preaching the gospel and challenging you to, to love Jesus, to make Jesus central in all that you do in a way that also propels you out of this tight-knit community into our world to love our city. And, and that the, the win in Genesis is not necessarily how many people show up, it's how many of us go and how many of us are intentional about loving our neighbors and doing things where we serve and, and, and love our city and, and be involved in the gospel to the nations. That's the win. And that we believe the Spirit will bless that. Um, when we first started Genesis, the first time gas got around $4 a gallon was really early in our tenure back in 2007, 2008, that, that when we had the whole, there was an economic collapse and gas took off and all that kind of stuff. And so we as a church did this thing called a gas buy-down. We went to um, the Phillips 66 station. We've developed a relationship with this uh, Hindu man named Dan who owns that place and started working with him and doing this one day. He did it as a customer appreciation day. We went and we bought like air fresheners with our, our uh, website and our logo on it, and um, it, was a, a, it was cinnamon, which I loved, so it was perfect, right? And we would spend like four, four hours one morning washing windows and pumping, pumping gas and just trying to love people. We'd have people come and go, what do you want from me? 
nothing. We're here to serve you. And some people didn't even believe we were there. Just They're always thinking, oh, you want some of my money. We, we, we would not take money. We just wanted to serve our city. But what would happen is that we would do this event, and then the day after, we would have people who were literally standing at the door watching. Who's going to show up? And sometimes it became very disheartening when nobody came when we had served the day before. And we started, like, this was a message we had to tell when we were, like, we were 30 or 40 people strong. The win is how many of us go. It is not how many people come. The win is how many of us go. Are are we loving our city, doing all we can to share the gospel, getting to know neighbors? The win is how many of us. It is God's job to save people and bring them in. That is not our job. It is our job to intentionally be a people who are on mission, who have a shepherding culture that challenges us to both love our neighbors and hold on to Jesus with all our might, right? That's what Barnabas does. And so then he goes against Saul, brings them in. And, and so we see the, the beautiful shepherding culture as he's even raising up a leader with him. The third thing we see in this text is that they have a serving culture. They end up with the Holy Spirit sends a prophet who says there's going to be a famine and Jerusalem's going to be in trouble. And what they do is they see the need of this church. They see poverty and brokenness. They see people who are hurting. And so what they do, they give according according to their need. Jews and Gentiles alike are taking up an offering so they can serve their brothers and sisters, both in their city in ways, but also... um, hundreds of miles away, and for a lot of the people who are now in this church to a group of people who they always thought were kind of weird and didn't know what to do with them in the Jewish people, but now they have Jews who are their brothers and sisters of Christ too. And they become a church that cares for the poor, reaches out to the broken, is generous, is intentional about serving. They're a serving church who is caring for the brokenness, broken things of the world. And the last thing they are is they become a sending church. And this, this shows up in verses 1 to 3 of the, the chapter 13. Look at what happens. Now, there were at the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, what, what we're being told here is you have this church in Antioch. It's grown, and now they have an elder teaching team that has these five men. These five men are the people who are preaching and teaching and doing the regular ministry. And, and first of all, notice that now you have Saul, a.k.a. Paul, and Barnabas as two of your teaching pastors. That would be pretty cool. If Saul showed up this morning, I would just go sit down and say, hey, man, you get it. You're a Bible scholar, and you were the apostle to the, to the nations. Let it go. Like, they had these two guys that are amazing, but they also have, notice it is diverse. This guy who is named Niger, what this, he's an, he's an African man who is black. That's what it means. He's a black man. And then they have this guy who is uh, Menaean, uh, I'm sorry, Lucius, who is from this island. So he's like a, or, or a Mediterranean island guy. And then you have this guy named Menaean, and it tells us he was a member of the court. What it literally means is he had spent his whole life as a friend from childhood with this leader named Herod the Tetrarch. And he's one of the Herods. We talked about the Herods last week, but he is a ruling king. And he's like, he's like an insider to politics. But these guys are... The, the elder team, and so it says they were worshiping, and other they, they were leading out in worship with the church, 
and they began to fast and pray. And I believe what they were fasting and praying over was the lostness of the nations. And as they were fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, we, I want you to set apart and send Paul and Barnabas for the mission. This question has been hovering in my thought. If Paul and Barnabas were elders here, would we do all we could to keep them here or would we do all we could to send them? I mean, that would be hard, right? Man, if this, these two guys leave, like Barnabas showed up and the church blew up and his encouragement has been so meaningful. Paul, man, he's this Bible scholar. Every time he preaches and teaches, we are so blessed and he is just challenging us to be on mission. What a great guy. They've got to be our two main guys. And the Holy Spirit says, they're gonna leave. And the church lays hands on them and sends them on the mission that God had raised them up for. This sending culture of raising up and developing leaders, of equipping those leaders, and some of them will serve here. Some of them will teach and preach and serve and have ministry here. But it's possible that we will see people raised up here that God says, nope, you're going to go. And we should celebrate that. This week, this family that we have loved so much is getting back on a plane and going back to Papua New Guinea. They're on their way now. We love them, and everything in me wants to go, no, stay here, stay here, except this is the call, and we are their sending church, and we need to do this over and over. We need to be a, a church on mission to our neighbors, to the nations, and be to develop a sending culture. And this is what happens in Antioch. It's what I hope will continually happen here, and you're like, okay, that's all well and good. You've already been preaching too long. What does this mean to me? So let me give you just a couple applications that I want to hit with you today. And the first application is for every single one of us, every individual in here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I want to speak to why this is so important in our culture. We live in a culture that is driven by an idol of consumerism. That idol of consumerism is wrapped up in the idol of individualism. In other, other words, everything in our world is telling you you are the most important thing in the universe, that, the, the, that your happiness is all that matters, and that you need to find experiences and you need to go to places that will totally cater everything in the world to you. And so, in, in, in terms of economics, for a long time, there were, you know, small-town grocery stores and small-town uh, 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 hardware stores and places you would go because what mattered was the community and then Walmart showed up. And what Walmart said is it doesn't matter what we need, we have it for you. And everybody went to Walmart. Now Walmart put everything out of business, right? And, and now the huge store, I've been in some Walmarts that were bigger than, than the town my wife grew up in, right? Has everything you need and it caters to you. Except Walmart's in trouble because along comes Amazon, who says you can do that from your, your, your lazy boy chair, right? And, and, and the marketing out there, everything out there says, all that matters is you, you do you, we have everything you need. And so what happens is, is this is like way down deep in who we are as people in our culture. It's just there. You don't even recognize it in yourself. You've been told over and over again, the only thing that matters is your happiness, and you need to go to places where they're dispensing goods and services that are for you, and you find the place that 
fits for you. And what's happened in the church world is that the church world has struggled with that. We've had a whole bunch of churches that became the Walmart version of churches. And the reason they worked and they blew up and they became huge, massive mega churches is because these churches said, you're all that matter. We're here to make you happy. And what we're going to do is we're going to develop programs and systems that are, are for you and your family so everybody will have the best experience anywhere. And we listened to that and said, we're going to go there because that's what matters. We're supposed to be happy. That church will make us happy. I, I think I've said this. I literally know of a church in Arkansas that built a water slide into the baptistry for kids. Who doesn't want to get baptized there? And from the pages of Scripture, is Jesus saying, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And what a church like Antioch will start doing is saying, your purpose is to love Jesus and to be used for the glory of God for his kingdom and his purpose. We are not here to make you happy. And what happened in COVID, and we've done it. I'm not against us doing a live stream. I know there's weeks you go on vacation. I hope you jump on a live stream on vacation. But it is an epidemic in America that COVID created Amazon Church, which is not a church. I'm going to sit, open my computer, pull up the screen, and I can watch. And if it, I don't like my pastor, I'll just go to some church where the dude is amazing and he preaches a lot shorter than Mike. I can be in and out of there, hear a couple songs, be in and out of there, get blessed. I do Amazon Church. And the church is never something we attend. The church is something we are. And, and so for some of you, it may be like, sometimes this church makes me feel uncomfortable. Good. Makes me uncomfortable too. Because it's not about you. A church like Antioch is going to force us to struggle with all kinds of issues because there are going to be concerns of people in our church who, who are different from me. And, and there's going to be a call to not get comfortable, but to be part of a going, sending culture. We're going to tell you that part of your discipleship is seeing yourself as a missionary, which means we're going to challenge you to love your neighbors, which we don't want to do because it's hard. Right? And, and so there's a little bit here of what's going on in this, this text is this sort of church pushes against our individualism. All right, second application, and then I'm going to get off the stage. Bands are going to come up here. We're going to sing. I now want to speak just for a minute to parents. Parents of teenagers, parents of little children, parents of toddlers, parents who haven't had their children yet but are just hoping one day to have children, or you got pregnant mom, and here's, here's my challenge to you. That part of developing a sending culture is that you, having the, you have a challenge for you to have that mindset as a parent. In other words... You walk up to any parent on the street, any parent, I'll ask you this. You ready? What do you want for your kids? And my guess is almost everybody in this world said, I want my kids to be, what is it? Happy. I want my kids to be happy. Yet, we are raising the generation of the least happy, most depressed kids Ever in history. What is going on? Why is it wrong? And here's why. We weren't made to have happiness as our highest goal. 
Happiness is a byproduct of knowing who I am in relationship to who God is and him inviting me to his mission. So here's the challenge. Push your kids on this. Challenge your kids that they need to get out of their comfort zone. They need to pray for people that, that they don't you know, necessarily like. Um, and, and even right now, a lot of you are already saving for college. That is a good thing. But what if right now you started putting aside a little bit of money and putting it into a fund for your five-year-old so that when they're 14, 15 years old, you can hand them that money for their birthday and say, this is for you to go overseas for a couple weeks. We just got, had a team get back from Ecuador. And it will challenge them. Start thinking in those terms about what it looks like for us to have a sending culture as a family that, that will intentionally, like, not just invite friends, but let's invite our neighbors over and get to know them and, and meet them and interact with them. Let's, let's make sure that we are, like if there's any people who are in our neighborhood, we know who are in poverty and who are hurting or are struggling or there's single moms who live up the street. We're like getting to know them and helping serve those needs. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sending our 12 and 13-year-old who mows our grass to their house so they can mow their grass, like that sort of thing. You know what will happen? As you begin to lift your kids, their chin off themselves and look at others, they will become happy because of the way God designed them. And that's why I want, I, I want us to be this church. I love the Antioch church. I love what it calls us to be. And I hope you're challenged today just by listening to that. I'm going to pray. The bands are going to come up here and worship. We're going to sing to Jesus and celebrate him um, and just ask the Lord to do a work in us and through us that um, honors what was in the story this morning and calls us to love our city in Eureka and then be a church that is about reaching our neighbors and the nations. And I'm even going to pray that the Lord will raise up people that we can even send out over the next 10 years, okay? Lord, I, I, I honor you for what you did in Antioch, and I pray that you would do it here. I pray for moms and dads. Um, I just pray, Lord, that you will help them see that there is a greater purpose and a call in the lives of their children than just happiness, that they will literally realize that, Lord, you may, be, you may have put children in their home for the purpose of sending them to the nations. And rather than being afraid and, and sometimes even fighting that, which I have seen, I pray that you would release parents to see that as the most joyous, beautiful thing that could happen with their kids. And I just prayed for us as a church that we, you would help us to love our neighbors, to reach across lines, to, to see people who are different, not as enemies, but as people who need Christ and need our friendship. And Lord, I pray that just the beauty of this church in Antioch would motivate us and challenge us. In your name I pray. Amen.